Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. This is episode 114 of the Energy Talks podcast, and today I'm going to be talking to Dr. Mark Winfield, who's a professor of environmental studies at York University, and we're going to be talking about a trio of reports that came out from the Ontario government and the uh, independent electricity system operator that deal with the future of Ontario's electricity system. And he and I have spoken on a number of occasions over the last uh, two or three years. And I think I could sum it up his opinion by saying the Ontario electricity system is broken. It's a mess. And the policies of the Ford government have been <laughs> steadily making it worse, it would appear. But these reports hold out, I think, hold out some hope that maybe the government is thinking about a different direction. So with that, oh, Mark, welcome to the interview. Good afternoon, Markham. You and I have been having this conversation for a while now. And I'm very curious to see uh, what you think about these three reports. And maybe what we should do, we'll start off with the 2022 annual planning outlook forecast uh, put out by the IESO. What's your take on it? Um, it's 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 interesting and, and complicated. Its relationship with the other reports is, is kind of an interesting question, too. Um, Probably the most important thing that we're starting to see um, is that um, conservation and demand side measures are back on the table in Ontario um, after they were pretty much demolished in 2019. Uh, the government is now talking about taking this seriously. Um, we're not fully seeing that reflected in the, the planning outlook yet. Um, because they are still anticipating uh, fairly significant growth in uh, greenhouse gas emissions from the electricity sector. In fact, if you dig into the data tables, it's worse than ever, um, heading over 20 megatons by the early 2040s. Uh, so we're not we're not getting there yet. Um, and it's it's sort of an interesting, potentially a kind of interesting work in progress as you look at the three, it's actually really four reports collectively, because of course then there is a specific report on conservation demand management. Um, and then the third report, which is actually two reports, um, one looking at the notion of a moratorium on adding gas-fired uh, generation to the system, and then the second, um, which is what they call the pathways report, which is trying to look out to 2050 uh, in terms of net zero. So really, we actually have four four reports <laughs> in play here. And, and in some ways, um, they haven't all caught up with each other. And, and in the background, there were yet two more. 
um, the distributed resource uh, potential study that came out this fall in October. And now they're also referring back to the last efficiency potential study in Ontario, which was done in 2019, and largely using it as the basis for their assumptions about what might be possible on the conservation side. So we're we're getting somewhat finer grained. I mean, the um, uh, the planning outlook will will you know is starting to look at some of the causes for demand growth, especially. My take on watching the Ford government is that the attitude may have started with the uh, many announcements of clean energy investments that have come in the last year to 18 months. So we think of battery plants. There's been a lot of interest in that. Now uh, critical minerals and metals for batteries are on the table. And I mentioned those because those specifically, the the uh, invest the company making the investment they always want clean electricity they want lots of it they need it at a reasonable price and it has to be zero emission or very cl very close to it and that's been a little bit of an Achilles heel for Ontario and and Ford has said very clearly that he wants uh, to attract as much EV manufacturing capital investment to Ontario as possible. And so somewhere along the line, I think it finally hit Dougie that, oops, if we're going to do this, if we're going to have an electrified economy. Uh, we need a lot of electricity and it's got to be it's got to be clean. Now, I may be giving him too much credit because I'm looking at it from halfway across the country. Is What do you think of that view? I'm not so sure what to make of where we're at. And you may be giving the government more credit than it did. <laughs> sure, uh, I can. It's, it's not clear where some of this is coming from. And it's also important to keep in mind, looking at the moratorium report, that the deflection from the current path isn't that significant at the end of the day. Um, in fact, as I say, in some ways, it, it the numbers actually look worse. Um, so I wouldn't want to overstate where where we're getting to um i mean the biggest shift as i mentioned is is that conservation demand management is back on the table there's thinking about yes if if we're moving in steel it's still unclear yes there's going to be electric arc furnaces whether this is going to be a fully hydrogenized process is, is still very unclear um they're looking somewhat at mining as one of the drivers, actually, although the whole critical minerals thing has its own whole mess of complexities, um, which we're only beginning to touch on, uh, particularly as it relates to Indigenous communities in Northern Ontario. Um, and then there is some muttering in the reports, too, about a hydrogen manufacturing or you know, hydrogen economy. So how much is, is, you know, how much here is window dressing and how much is a real shift is is unclear. I think there's some recognition that there's an economic rationality to the CDM side, um, but uh, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't get too carried away yet. They they want to be able to talk about being clean, but as you look at the details, it's it's still less clear um, beyond the embrace of CDM where we're actually heading at this stage. Mark, please don't tell me, please don't tell me that the government is trying to 
deflect public attention and deflect attention from the federal government, which has emissions reductions targets, with narrative and with politics, while meanwhile the status quo basically carries on more or less untouched. Please don't tell me that. Well, I'm afraid if you read the ATO report and the moratorium report, there's a strong element of that going oh, on. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Uh, their preferred pathway still involves building at least 1,500 megawatts of new gas. Um, in the in some elements of the versions of this, they would burn less gas than they were planning on, uh, mostly because of the increased CDM. So there is potentially right. some progress, but then some of that also is being overwhelmed by growth and demand. So I think I think there's more seeness here. Um, and I'm not sure how much is coming from the government itself, the political level, and how much is the IESO feeling some heat because it's been beaten up pretty badly. You've got a lot of municipal movement here. Um it's un it's unclear that the, the the pennies are dropping, but I would still say they're dropping slowly, and there's still a very very strong theme of protecting incumbents, particularly on the nuclear side and on the gas side, and of course that is um, one very particular incumbent in particular, which is of course Ontario Power Generation. Well, it's very, it's very interesting how, uh, you know, I've done for the last, I don't know, well over a decade, I've been reporting on the oil and gas industry, which is, you know, it has its incumbents, uh, particularly the oil sands companies. And, and now we're looking at the electricity system and we see the incumbents in, in uh, sometimes their, you know, uh, crown corporations, crown corporation utilities who have a virtual monopoly within a particular province here we have big uh incumbents who are who are uh impeding progress and this may be the thing and i don't want to get too deep into this because we, we really do want to get back to the reports but I'll, i want to leave listeners with this one comment is that while canada much of Canada has a, a very workable electricity system at the moment. We're 80% clean, we're reasonably priced, we're reliable, all of that. Our very success may be our downfall because we the incumbents in that system are so powerful that they're resisting the kind of change that you see in the United States, in Europe, and in other jurisdictions. And... I and that, and we may be seeing an example of it here in Ontario with this, these reports. Partially, I would say what's going on in some ways is a bit more sophisticated than that on the part of the incumbents. And what we're starting to see is, is more um, how they might use the decarbonization narrative to actually reinforce their own positions. Um, and to get green lights on very big, very centralized, uh, very large, high-risk um, infrastructures, which otherwise they wouldn't be able to get permission to pursue. Um, and I think you're seeing an element of that in the ISO, uh, so what they call the pathways, um, because certainly the position of Ontario power generation, for example, would would be reinforced significantly. And certainly in the conversations I'm starting to hear, 
you're hearing the incumbents talking very much about big centralized capital intensive infrastructure um and they want green lights to proceed with it um so it's it's a little more complicated than that um and it may be it's it's you know the newer actors and the newer technologies which are potentially being more marginalized in this process i mean the incumbents are looking i think to defend their their relatively dominant positions in these systems and indeed potentially to be the beneficiaries of some very very large capital investments okay let's leave that now because that the whole question about incumbents and narrative management and and all of that is a fascinating discussion, but better to be had in another podcast. Let's talk about the, the planning outlook. Now, I was surprised to see that the IESO is forecasting that demand, electricity demand, will increase almost 2% a year over the next two decades. That's healthy growth uh, because for many, I don't know what it was in Ontario, but I know in BC, they had 2% a year up until the the implosion of the uh 2008 2009 financial uh, crisis and then demand flatlined for over a decade decade so to and i suspect something similar probably happened in ontario demand growth has actually been negative um since about 2005 um so there are there are a lot of questions embedded in there um i mean they are seeing they're assuming a good deal of that demand growth comes from electric of transport, um, although it's an interesting assumption in Ontario, given the province has no actual strategy for electrifying transport. <laughs> um, they're sort of assuming the federal mandates drive the process. Um, they're also seeing some growth, as I mentioned, industrial because of you know increased electric arc furnaces and steel, potentially from mining, potentially from a hydrogen type sector. Um, so they are back to projecting growth. Um, at the same time, if you look at the conservation potential studies, they're saying, well, most of that growth could be managed through demand side measures. Um, so the two pieces have not quite connected yet, keeping in mind that Ontario is doing virtually nothing on CDM at the moment. Um, so where that plays out is, is still a little uncertain in my mind. And there's still lots of questions now about whether this, how much of this really manifests as, as centralized grid demand, which is what they're assuming, um, versus how much happens through distributed resources, behind the meter, other things, how far can we push the conservation envelope? I mean, demand growth projections have been the Achilles heel in Ontario electricity policy for the last 50 years. Um, so. But I think one needs to be a little cautious in terms of thinking a little bit more about how does this really play out and what does it look like, um, as opposed to charging ahead quite so aggressively at this stage until we've, we've pushed these other possibilities a bit further. Last year, the Alberta electrical system operator published a report that I read uh, and it was, you know, it was about the future of the, the grid in Alberta and what needed to take place there to prepare it for the future. And they, they spent two years talking to uh, stakeholders, uh, a lot of businesses, but also the utilities in Alberta. And one point stood out for me. It was like 
flashing neon red lights around it. And that is that the utilities are absolutely terrified that business, big, bigger businesses like commercial, commercial industries, and then industries like, you know, oil and gas and, and other, you know, maybe refineries, that sort of thing, that they will self-generate, that they will, they will set up, I guess it'd be primarily solar, but who knows if you're big enough and you're on the outskirts of town, maybe you put up your own wind farm, who knows, but that they, they will no longer be on the grid. They will take themselves off the grid and a combination of renewables and storage and they're gone. And then that's a huge source of revenue uh, for the utilities and, and a huge source of revenue to support the grid. And I correct me if I'm wrong, but I, it seems that that, concern would might also apply to Ontario. Oh, I think it applies very significantly is is do you particularly if if grid costs rise and and the figure that the ISO hung on things was something like 400 billion um in investments the possibility of what's referred to as behind the meter generation of various forms becoming more significant grid defection as it's referred to I mean these are these are parts of this puzzle which I don't think the modeling that we're seeing so far is, is fully taking into account. Indeed, one of the studies we look at, the one from David Suzuki Foundation, which is really the folks at the Energy Integration Center at UVic, um, yeah, they're very explicit in saying we, 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 we can't even model that at this stage. Um, but these are possibilities that I think as we start to project what do pathways to net zero and full decarbonization, full electrification look like? Um, these are the sorts of variables we're going to have to have planning processes that can take into account and and think about how do we manage, because that's where the risk of asset stranding could come in. If you build huge, high-cost centralized assets and then discover that large parts of your load are abandoning you through DERs or self-generation, um, you're in deep trouble. Um, so these are these are the sorts of questions I think we're just beginning to 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 scratch the surface of. And in some ways, all of these studies are are beginning to open these doors that that there's a lot of variables in play here as we try and plot out these pathways. And we're gonna have to think about how do we how do we how do we identify them, how do we deal with them? in the planning and decision-making process. Um, how are we flexible enough to account for those kinds of uncertainties about how this all could play out? Particularly, you know, we're talking a 25 to 30 year time frame. Um, you know, I was thinking about this earlier, that, you know, where they're trying to project out to 2050. Well, from here, it's the equivalent, you know, going back to the mid 1990s in terms of where we were technologically. You know, at which point there was no what we would call modern storage. There were no smart grids and, you know, renewables were uneconomic. Well, and speaking of, I've had the, uh, the pleasure of interviewing some uh, battery experts recently, and including the CEO of a Canadian startup called Salient Energy, which is going to be bringing to market, I think in about 2024, a zinc ion battery. And this is meant for stationary storage only. And so it would be utility scale. It would be large, you know, the, the large commercial and industrial players that we're talking about, and even uh, in the home market. And so it would be safer. 
it, you know, doesn't, it's not using lithium. Uh, sorry. Uh, yeah. It's not using lithium yeah. and it has other advantages, lower cost, and on and on and on. But the question I put to the battery experts like James Frith from Volta Technologies was how ready are those technologies to disrupt systems like you know, we're talking about here? And the answer was not tomorrow, but not next month either. Like it's close. It's and it close. seems like, yeah. And it seems like Ontario could be very vulnerable to some significant disruption in the system that if it continues on with that vertically integrated, you know, the old industrial style we've had for the last 125 years and doesn't plan for these new technologies. No, well, this is, this is, this is the challenge. And, you know, you just, I mean, the whole battery thing has happened in the space of less than a decade. Indeed, it's really been the last five years or so that, that, that there was, there was a real, so the, you know, the economics came together, scale came together very, very quickly. Um, so we're, we're, this is, this is the, this is one of these huge challenges is, and the modeling can only, can't really account for that fully, but these are variables you'd want to be thinking about, you know, because if the cost of critical minerals goes up, then the incentives to figure out ways to do batteries that don't require, um, the same sorts of materials goes up. And if they're in stationary applications, you've got a lot more flexibility in grid applications, you know. For a vehicle, you've got to have a certain energy density uh, to make it work. Um, if you're doing a stationary grid application, you've got a bit more flexibility. Things like flow batteries and stuff like that are going to work for you too. So this is this is when I say there's there's a complexity and uncertainty to these forward-looking exercises that our current planning processes I don't think are doing a very good job. You know, really are ne were never designed for because they were they were designed around processes that were fundamentally technologically static um that that you know we had hydro we had coal we had gas we had nuclear that was about it um and and there wasn't a whole lot of movement moving in those spaces suddenly you know we're in the biggest technological revolution in the electricity sector since i don't know thomas edison figured out how to do a distribution grid uh with you know cost on renewables, the storage thing, I would add um, smart grids, digital, digitalization of, of grid control, um, which allows for things that, that you know, were fantasy in the 1970s or even the 90s are now possible. Um, it makes planning forward very, very difficult, um, but the planning process has to be able to account for this in some way, or we're going to end up with stranded assets. And and that has to be a worry when you look at something like the the um, the Ontario Pathways Report, which puts a lot of emphasis on some very big, centralized, very expensive assets. Um, Are we talking about generating assets or just generating uh, transmission? Assets, generating especially, but transmission too, uh, because you'd organize the transmission around the big centralized generating assets. Of course. Um, your your lock in risks. And making bad choices, risks are high. So, I mean, this is this is a challenge as we try and figure. Out how would you do this? Because the way we've approached planning and decision making in the past um, may be less than helpful. Um, in fact, could lead us down some some in, into quite significant trouble. 
Um, so we're gonna have to think, you know, this, this is the challenge, which I think all of these reports are ultimately framing, is, is how do you find pathways forward in this, this um, period of rapid technological change, complexity and uncertainty? Let's add another element of complexity here, and that is federal policy. Uh, the federal the federal government has a uh, refresh my memory mark. It's a it wants to get to a, a net zero power grid nationally by twenty thirty five. Twenty thirty five. Twenty thirty five. So it's going to have some standards, yeah. uh, some regulations. Uh, there were there's talk of uh, perhaps, if I understand correctly, uh, some kind of carbon pricing scheme. Yes, that that it, it is. I understand the current proposal. Um, part of what would happen is that at that point you wouldn't necessarily be at net zero, but that um, the the fossil assets would be coming out of the output based pricing system and and basically paying the full freight in terms of carbon pricing on their greenhouse gas emissions. I mean that that is sort of the enforcement mechanism um at 2035 at least as i understand the way these conversations are unfolding right and we need to we need to explain for listeners i i often talk about output based pricing in the context of oil and gas yeah uh, where basically you're getting an 80 you know the companies are getting an 80 to 90% discount on the carbon price so instead of when it's 50 they're actually paying you know maybe 5 bucks yeah. Uh, I think we've seen some re media reports here lately where over the last couple of years, you know, big companies like Suncor pay, you know, 60 cents or $2 a barrel uh, instead of the full carbon pricing. So the output-based system, uh, which gives those discounts, it would be, would not, would be applied right now to natural gas power plants. Is, plants. is that correct? Yes, they are considered, they're one of the sectors covered by the output-based pricing system so precisely that they only actually pay the carbon price on the proportion of their emissions above a, a set sectoral standard. So right. as you say, possibly less than 5% of their actual emissions they're actually paying the carbon price on. So if you take fossil fueled electricity generating assets out of the output-based pricing system, um you would they would effectively then be paying the full cost of their emissions that if they're minting 100 tons then they pay the hard carbon price in 100 tons not on five tons right. as they might do now so that would be very very significant in terms of it would fundamentally alter uh the cost picture particularly for natural gas fire generation um that, so the is, that is one of the so hammers that could that could be deployed so the federal and the federal government can bring this in sooner if it wants. I mean, it has the legislative authority to to do that and to and to impose it on the the province if the province blocks. Yes, I mean that is the one of the implications. Um, how far the federal government's prepared to go here? Because there have been some concerns about loopholes in the clean electricity regulation, particularly for. Uh, facilities commissioned before 2025, and indeed part of the reason Ontario is so anxious to build gas now is they're trying to get under that deadline so they can be grandfathered in. But yes, if the federal government wanted to be more robust in its approach, that would be one of the very obvious tools to take 
And indeed, it is to some degree being anticipated in some of the modeling that we're seeing in these various reports in terms of how they see uh, the cost of different options playing out. Is they're assuming um, that basically fossil fuel generating assets are are basically brought into the the full car the the the, the carbon pricing, the carbon levy, as opposed to the output based system, and now, that changes the cost framework quite a bit. Right. So we, we've talked a lot of a lot of the, the, the key issues uh, here in terms of decarbonization pathways and some of the policy frameworks that are changing. But now there, there are two other studies that we want to talk about because they take more of a big picture macro view, I think. The Atmospheric Fund published Scenarios for a Net Zero Electricity System in Ontario. And the David Suzuki Foundation has published Shifting Power zero emissions electricity across Canada by 2035. What lessons or, or what observations might we find in those reports that apply to Ontario? Um, well, they're they're both very interesting reports. Um, interesting, the Atmospheric Fund report actually uses the same models and the same, um, the same consultants as the ISO did, um, which is sort of interesting, but puts in different assumptions. And and gets to quite different places in terms of their conclusions. Now they're only going out to 2035, so that's an important consideration. So they're looking um, for how would you how would you phase out gas in Ontario to 2035? And probably the most significant thing they ran they ran three scenarios, um, one which which um, has new nuclear, but um, but also involves a fair bit of conservation, um, one that doesn't involve any conservation, and one that doesn't involve any any what they term new nuclear, which would basically mean the Darlington SMR and a Pickering uh, Pickering B B refurbishment as opposed to a life extension, um, where they're differing perhaps most significantly from um, the ISO is that they are. Um, more bullish on the potential on the conservation side and on demand response, which is basically load shifting. Um, and they're also not limiting the growth in renewables in the same way that the IESO does. Um, and they do get to a, a uh, you know, a, a gas phase out scenario by 2035 um, which looks reasonably affordable. Um, uh, so it's quite a different outcome. And interestingly, uh, in their modeling, the option that doesn't involve what they term new nuclear, which is quite limited to say it's, it's a Pickering B refurbishment and an SMR, um, actually comes out the cheapest um, in some ways uh, um, in terms of capital costs, I mean, there's it, it, a little bit of difference depending on how you you figure the age of existing facilities and things like that. So it's it's kind of an interesting exercise in terms of just thinking through that with some different assumptions in some key areas um, that uh, you get to a, quite a different place from where the ISO lands, which effectively is its its moratorium paper. Um, which is sort of its attempt to say, well, here's where we could get to by 2035, which says, yes, somewhat less, we're burning less gas, potentially quite significantly less gas, mostly because we're doing conservation demand management. So it is it is progress, 
uh, but Taft mostly their explanation is say is they're they're stronger on the conservation and demand response side, and they're also less constrained on on the renewable side. So that sort of adds another dimension to the whole sort of set of questions that are playing out here. And even they're not, you know, they're relatively technologically conservative too. They're not making big assumptions necessarily fully about distributed resources, for example, because that's still too new in, in the mix. Um, but it does lay out a different path from the one the IESO has tabled as it's basically its preferred option, which is its moratorium option, but it's still acquiring 1500 megawatts of new gas in that scenario um, and still burning a lot of gas, but less uh, than it was under essentially the, the scenario you see in the, in the planning uh, report, um, they're getting their, their sort of the role of gas reduced quite significantly and bringing the greenhouse gas emissions down by eight megatons relative to where they would be under the, the planning scenario report, which is effectively sort of their, their business as usual, as opposed to the moratorium report, which is them starting to think about how far can we get here. So if I were to sum up, uh, and this is a very complex story in Ontario, and a lot of it, uh, the relative positions are, I mean, it just seems to be things are very much in flux at the moment. Things have changed since the last time I, I interviewed you about this. But it seems like the province is open to other either low or zero emission options and maybe limiting some gas, still committed to nuclear and the refurbishment as, as we stand today, still not crazy about renewables, even though I see the, uh, the pathways to decarbonation uh, report from the IESO is talking about more uh, intermittent supply. So presumably it's, it's more open than it, than it has been in the past. But there are two big wild cards here. One is the federal government and its desire to get to clean electricity uh, by 2035. And the other is the distributed energy resources and what that role might play at the, you know, if, if big industry and other big consumers decide to migrate from the grid. And that's a lot of complexity to manage. And I assume from your conversation, the conversation we've had in your comments, that Ontario just isn't doing a good job planning. Well, the problem is there is no planning process, uh, as we've discussed before. And this is this is where that those chickens start to come home to roost a bit. Um, is the system to a certain degree was coasting. Um, and uh, now coasting looks like less of an option. One, because as we were discussing earlier, there are now industrial and other drivers that are going to potentially increase demand significantly. Um, and we've also now had a, a fair, I think it would be fair to say a fair political fuss over the pathway that the province was on about which involves a large increase in greenhouse gas emissions. Indeed, it's an octuply relative to 2017 is the actual number in the in the 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 um, planning outlook report. Um, 
so and then you also now do have some pressure from the federal government um so the province and you know with the implications both of rising natural gas prices because of the war in ukraine which could become structural and also this question we just discussed about what happens with carbon pricing um suddenly ontario needs to engage in in some serious planning and thinking and we have no process to do that um the iso has internal processes but they are internal and and relatively non-transparent um the process has been profoundly politicized as we've discussed before i mean there is there is no regulator there is no review process there really is no structured mechanism for bringing together the the thinking that exists around all of this and and puzzling through that um so this is this is a very serious problem for the province now as it's confronted with with us not just one but serious problems and others we've discussed before around you know, the emergency distributed resources the risk of cent stranding centralized assets there's already a lot of concern about that um this has become very complicated and we are simply lacking any structure um to deal with it i mean the planning process is the cabinet makes it up and gives directives to the the iso and the energy board and the other actors Good. and that's not going to work anymore <laughs> it sounds like the way alberta makes oil and gas uh, policy it, it's not entirely dissimilar i mean we we explicitly politicized the process in i know it did in fairness it was kathleen Wynne's government who did that not doug ford um but you know, we're now confronted with these very significant challenges and, and you know, very, very significant economic implications too. And we really have no process to, to, through which to deal with, to have this conversation and to really think through, you know, what's so different about what TAF has said, where is the UVIC people come from um, and what really is, is the best pathway forward, which bits some parts I think you could say we're pretty sure about. Other parts we probably need to think some more before we we commit um, irrevocably to certain pathways. Well, Mark, this has been a fascinating discussion because the consequences for Ontario are potentially very severe. Um, I think the experts that I interview outside of Canada are all in agreement that we really are in the disruptive decade of the energy transition. And in fact, the energy transition has progressed to the point where it essentially kickstarted an economic transformation aided by the twin shocks of the COVID-19 pandemic and Russia invading Ukraine. So suddenly within just a couple of years, the economic, the global economic landscape looks very, very different. And the one in which Canada has been a supplier uh, primarily of, you know, raw materials uh, and mostly unprocessed raw materials, that economy is changing pretty quick. And it's not clear that there's going to be the same demand for what we dig up and 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 ship off than it used to be. The, 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 uh, the very structure of the global economy is changing. And clean electricity said this at the outset, bears repeating again, clean, reasonably priced, uh, abundant electricity is at the heart of the emerging economy. 
whatever it looks like 10 years or 20 years from now, elect clean, abundant, low-cost electricity will be the foundation, just the way the fossil fuels have been the foundation for the last 100, 125 years. And if Ontario doesn't get its act together, then its foundation is going to be creaky. Be big cracks in it. It's not going to support the kind of growth that Ontarians are accustomed to. So any final thoughts before we sign off? I think um, we're we're sort of exactly that we're in this this disruptive moment. And I think the challenge is that that um, business as usual approaches to planning, which in some ways is what the ISO reports reflect. Um, aren't ad adequate to deal with the levels of complexity and uncertainty that we're, we're now confronted with in terms of what this pathway looks like. Is it, is it you know, there's an awful lot of emphasis. I heard this at the, the meeting I was at last week about energy modeling you know, from agencies, a lot of emphasis on big capital intensive, highly centralized, high impact, high risk uh, infrastructures. And I think we got a lot of thinking to do, given the level, the pace of technological change, um, about is that really the way this is going to unfold? And we need to be thinking about um, a planning process and a build out which is which is adaptive and and scalable and perhaps more incremental in its approach, so it can respond. Um, to shifts as they happen, as opposed to committing to a pathway that we're gonna be stuck with 50 years from now, because the chances of us getting that right are pretty close to zero. Um, it has to be a more iterative process and a more flexible process that works on shorter timelines. Um, and I would argue is more distributed in its approach. Um, and I don't think we're there yet because we don't we don't really know how to plan for this. We've, we're we're approaching this the way we've always planned electricity, which has mostly been around big centralized infrastructures, and that may not be the way this plays out, both on the demand side and the supply side. And I think we've got to be thinking about how do we how do we deal with that level of uncertainty. New institutions to undertake planning as we head into a new phase of economic development. I, I agree. And I think I see that. I live in British Columbia. I see that uh, required here. I report a lot on Alberta, particularly oil and gas. I see it there. And I, and I imagine that that lesson could be applied to uh, other provinces uh, within the country as well. We may need to create new institutional structures, as we were discussing in our pre-conversation. Um, when Mr. Mulroney was confronted with the sustainable development question in the 1980s, uh, one of the things he did was to create the roundtable on the environment and the economy, um, which was outside of the existing institutional structures, precisely because he saw you would you would never get to the conversations you needed to have about what sustainable development meant in Canada with the existing institutions. They were too embedded and too committed to the existing pathways. Um, we may be in a similar kind of situation around energy planning that we, we need different kinds of capabilities and different processes to be able to, to really usefully wrap our heads around the implications 
of these moves in the direction of, of uh, uh, net zero electricity, but also fuller decarbonization as well. And we're only we're only in early stages of the conversation. All the studies we've looked at today are very important contributions to those conversations. They all they all tell us things that we we didn't really know or think about before. Um, so I, I think from that perspective, they're all very useful and important. Um, but I wouldn't say at this stage, any of them could claim to be a definitive pathway. They're, they're contributions to, to a discussion which, which needs to go on. Well, Mark, thank you very much for this. Uh, uh, always appreciate your insights. And uh, it's that time of the year. So Merry Christmas to you and your family. We're doing Same this. Yes. We're recording this on December 22nd, so uh, the big day is only a few days away. And uh, all the best in 2023, and we'll look forward to more conversations with you about Ontario Electricity, because this is uh, the story's not going away, and it's, uh, it is quite serious and significant. Yep. Thank you. Thank you.